You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series, The Evil of Altruism by Ankar Gatte. Okay, so I want to start off with the, the way that some movies and, or a lot of movies and TV shows start off today with a little bit of time travel. So project yourself back into the 18th century. Slavery's widespread, widely accepted. Do you see yourself as an opponent of slavery? Now it's easy if, if you're thinking of the time travel as you're projecting yourself back now into the 18th century to think, yeah, I'm opposed to slavery. I'd be opposed to slavery in the 18th century. But if you were born in the 18th century, would you be opposed to slavery? Would you listen to the arguments of the burgeoning movement of abolitionists who say that slavery is evil and we should reject it? Or would you be among the many, many, many who just said, no, slavery is acceptable, everybody else seems to accept it, I accept it as well. <clears throat> and if you listen to the arguments, would you have the courage then to act on it? If you read back some of the history of the abolitionists in the 18th century, and this goes into the 19th century, they're persecuted, attacked, opposed, denounced, because they're saying that slavery is evil. They're, when they're going to, to, certainly in the US, when they're going to different towns, they're literally run out of town. They're opposed, attacked, beaten up, and run out of town. And they do this over and over and over again, protesting against the evil of slavery. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that I think of Ayn Rand as in, a, as in the position of the abolitionist in the 18th century. That just as the abolitionist said that slavery is evil, even though most people accepted it, and they were opposed when they said that slavery is evil, Ayn Rand more widely is saying that conventional morality, the moral views and the moral ideas that we accept and have absorbed from the culture is evil. And it's not just like slightly mistaken, it's evil. <clears throat> and even though most people accept it, and when she makes this point, she's attacked over and over again. And I think for basically the same reasons that the abolitionists were attacked. It's difficult to hear that views central to your whole worldview are not just mistaken, they're radically evil, and that you should reject them completely. And yet that's what Ayn Rand's position is in regard to conventional morality. And I want to talk now a little bit in the next 20, 25 minutes about why she thinks of it like this. And the first question that I want to ask is what is conventional morality? Then what does it really mean and therefore why does she regard it as evil? But the first question is like, what is conventional morality? And there's a lot you could say here. This, I'm taking one thing something I read about a month ago as, as just a, a perfect exemplar of what conventional morality is. This is a book by a Supreme Court Justice of the United States that just came out. It's a kid's book. So it's aimed, and it's about moral education or, or sort of moral inspiration for kids. Just help. <clears throat> and it's, it's a kid's book. It's meant to be benign, helpful, uncontroversial. So there's a lot of, if you know anything about the US Supreme Court 
right now. There's a lot of dispute and a lot of ideological difference on the Supreme Court. None of the judges would object to anything in this book. Um, it, because it, it's meant to be like th this is what everybody thinks about morality. This is what we have to inculcate into our kids. And this, and the book is about 20 pages with a lot of pictures. So there's not a lot of words in the book. It, these are all quotes from the book. The whole thing is about teaching this kid and the kid's name Sonia that she has to live a life of service. She has to find a way to help her neighbors and serve her neighbors and her country. One of the examples of what she has to do, she has to go through her wardrobe and find her favorite shirt and then give it away. And if you do that, that's inspirational. This is how you inspire people to be moral. You want people who act unselfishly. And then the sort of the lesson of the book, one way it's put, is that each time you do this, each time you act unselfishly, when you give up things that you really love, what you're doing is you're becoming part of something bigger than yourself. And this, I take it, it's a perfect exemplar of conventional morality in that we've been told this time and time and time again. If you, if, if um, you haven't heard this, I mean, my view is you've been living under a rock. You, you can't go anywhere without hearing that like, this is what morality means. And if you ask why, like why is this what morality means? Where does this come from? Where does the idea that what morality is about is about serving and subordinating yourself to something bigger than yourself? Where does that come from? I think the answer is this, it's in the worldview that replaced the ancient Greek worldview. So where does it come from? The answer is it comes from religion. It comes, when we're thinking about the Western world, it's primarily Christianity. But if you think more broadly, it comes from religion more broadly. And I typically use Abraham as the symbol of what religion means and what it's really imploring us to do because he's a figure that was respected in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam. They all view him as a hero. And if, it's, if you think giving up your favorite short is really what morality is about, he has to give up his favorite son. And that's the whole peril, that that is what it's about. And he's meant as a hero precisely because he's willing to do that. That that is the essence of what morality is about. Are you ready to really give up and give up the things that matter most to you in order to serve something bigger than yourself? Now, there's a lot you could say about Abraham, but I want to focus on the other aspect of this sacrifice. Why does God need Abraham's sacrifice? God's all-powerful in the Christian tradition. He's all good. He can do things like that. What does he need to sacrifice for? Obedience, loyalty, yeah, I would put it a little differently. He doesn't need it. it. He does not need it. He can do anything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. It accomplishes nothing. The sacrifice accomplishes nothing. And the more you think about it, about like, what, why do you need this God who needs all these sacrifices? 
And God doesn't need it. And the more you get it, so it's put as obedience and so on. Yeah, the more you think about it, what the essence of the view is and what it's about is putting people on their knees. It accomplishes nothing, but what you have to do is serve, bow, be obedient, don't ask questions. That's what really what the morality is about, that it's sacrifice for the, sel- for the sake of sacrifice. And so Ayn Rand would often put it, what it's really about is about self-sacrifice. It's about giving up. It's about renouncing. It's not to, in the name of accomplishing anything. And if you think about the religious view, it does not accomplish anything. Uh, the test is, will Abraham get on his knees? Will he submit? Will he serve unquestionably? But it accomplishes nothing. And I think Ayn Rand's view, which I agree with completely, is that what conventional morality is, is just this view, the religious view secularized. So the religious morality is about sacrifice, service, obedience to God. Conventional morality, what it does is it removes God but keeps the essence of the view. And this is what you get in, say, the Supreme Court Justice's book. It's about obedience, sacrifice, service, now to something bigger than yourself. We're not going to call it God. And what you get with later moralists who are trying to say, like, we're abandoning religion, it's supernatural, it's unscientific, we need some kind of substitute, and what it means to sacrifice for something bigger than yourself, what you get in the sort of the history of philosophy is you get substitutes. And the two biggest substitutes are, uh, and certainly in the 19th century, is one is you sacrifice to duty. This is the whole Kantian perspective. And the other one is going to be you sacrifice to the greatest happiness, which is the utilitarian perspective. And to this day, when morality is taught, um, and particularly when it's taught, in a, it's supposed to be in a sort of non-philosophic, uncontroversial way. So if you pick up textbooks, for instance, of how lawyers learn about morality or how engineers, if they're reading about morality, and we, we have to teach you some ethics in your profession and so on, it's typically what they get is it's a choice between the Kantian view about morality is about duty or morality is about serving the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And it's pick one of these, and they don't really care because they come down to the same thing. So they pick one of these two, but they're basically the same thing. And the duty, the, I mean, you can think of Abraham as what he is about is about duty. And I put up the famous lines from the Tennyson poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which captures, um, it really captures the mentality of duty. There's not to make reply means you're not to make any reply that God says you have to sacrifice your son and so on. What is it going to accomplish? No, you're not supposed to ask any questions, make any reply. It's, you're just supposed to submit. You're not supposed to make any reply. You're not supposed to reason why. You're just supposed to do and die. And the Tennyson poem is upholding, I mean, there's a way in which it's upholding sort of the British sense of duty as this is a good thing. And this is what it means. So you got, there's this kind of view or there's this kind of view um, that you substitute for God the greatest happiness. And I put up a quote, and I'm not sure if anybody will recognize this quote. 
all honors to those who abnegate. And abnegate means give up, surrender, renounce. For themselves, the personal enjoyment of life. So if you can give up your personal enjoyment of life, when by such renunciation, they increase the amount of happiness in the world. That's John Stuart Mill um, in, in his famous essay on utilitarianism. And it is, like, he's considered, uh, uh, and he is in a sense, uh, 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 the most prominent 19th century liberal. Um, he thinks of himself as opposing the other view, but it's really just all you're doing is substituting. Instead of you have to do your duty, now you have to live for everybody else's happiness. And if you can renounce the things that you value, that brings you personal enjoyment, so that's what you should do. So this is where the, so if we're thinking, what is conventional morality? It's essentially about self-sacrifice. It comes from religion, and it comes from religion secularized. Um, in, the, in the modern world, it's religion secularized. Now, if we go back to, to ask, like, really what this means, um, it's even worse than just, I think, the call for, it's about renunciation, sacrifice, surrender. And if we go back to the, the I'll go back to this, um, the Sotomayor, the Supreme Court Justice's book, that what you're supposed to do is give up your favorite shirt for something bigger than yourself. Ayn Rand asked questions about this view that, basically nobody else asks. <clears throat> so if you're supposed to give up your shirt, and this whole kid's book is about give up your favorite shirt to somebody else, why is that person not immoral for keeping it? If you're selfish in wearing the shirt, why when you give it to your favorite shirt, you're selfish if you wear it? Why, if when you give it up, is the person who puts it on, why aren't they being selfish? <clears throat> if you're supposed to engage in self-sacrifice, why doesn't the person who gets the shirt, why don't they have to engage in self-sacrifice? They're worse off than you. I think it's actually even worse than that. Because there is an answer to this. It's not, oh, you've caught us in an inconsistency. There's an answer to this. <clears throat> if you've produced, earned, created the value, what you're told to give it is to give it up. If you didn't produce it, if you didn't create it, if you didn't earn it, take it. It's your right to take it. It's your moral right to take it. That's what it comes down to. So it's not just about renunciation and self-sacrifice as though everybody's supposed to be doing it. In the end, what it amounts to is some people have to engage in renunciation and sacrifice in surrender and self-sacrifice for the sake of others who don't have to engage in that, who don't have to do that. Um, and I think the 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 best slogan of the 19th century in terms of thinking about this is the Marx slogan. So I had, uh, the duty comes, it's the Kantian school in the 19th century. The greatest happiness is the utilitarian school. Marxism, and the famous um, quote from Marx, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, is that view in a nutshell. Ability means if you're able to produce, if you're able to earn, if you're able to create, 
you don't have a right to the thing. Whatever it is, whether it's property, health, your favorite shirt, you don't have a right to it. Who does? The people who are unable to earn it, unable to create it, unable to produce it. And it's, so it's not an accident. If you read Atlas Shrugged, this slogan as one of the ways of capturing what conventional morality is about, that from each according to his ability to each according to his need, figures prominently in the book. And the book's not about communism. Uh, we the Living, her first novel, is set in Soviet Russia. It is about communism and more widely statism. Atlas Shrugged isn't, but it uses this slogan, um, and it's central in the story, I think, because this captures what the real meaning of the doctrine is. Um, and so her view of it, I think her evaluation of it is it's a war. What conventional morality is, is a war on anyone who creates anything. It's a war that she'll sometimes put it on, on the producers. It's on the creators, on the people who build, on the builders, as it, as it would often be put today. It's designed, and it's, uh, I want to emphasize, it's designed to bleed life from living. If what human life is about is about creation, production, building things, earning things, and I think Greg will talk um, later today more about that, that that's what human life is about. If that's what it's about, if you have a morality designed to say, you lose the moment you create, produce, or earn something, and you gain if you don't create, produce, earn, then you have what you have is a morality that's designed to bleed life from the living. And the view is then that, and for a certain logic to it, that what it results in to the extent that it's practiced is destruction. And if you think just of the recent history of Europe, part of Ayn Rand's view was that you to understand what happened in Europe in the late 19th century and into the 20th, 20th century, and that you see its remnants today, is that this view, this conventional morality was taken seriously. So I had the Marxist slogan up. The amount of people who were advocates, supporters, followers of Marxism, and viewed it as a moral crusade. That's what gave it inspiration. Was, I mean, you can count it in the millions of the people who followed this. But it was, it's equally true if you look at what was considered the sort of opposing communism, the idea that fascism and communism were opposed. When you looked at what their moral slogans were, they were basically the same. I mean, so this is, uh, this is Mussolini. And he's very conscious of the fact of what they're doing is emulating religion um, and, and the nature of religion. So here's one uh, of a fairly famous quote from Mussolini. We have created our myth, and that's part of it, that it's a connection to religion. The myth is a faith. It is a passion. Our myth is the greatness of the nation. And to this myth, we subordinate all the rest. And if you read this in context, it's clear what subordinate means. It means sacrifice, obey, so the state, the nation, the individual is to throw his life away if necessary. Hitler was more explicit than Mussolini on this. 
it's, this is what he extolled, and part of this he views the Aryans as, as exemplifying this beyond every other race. The state of mind which subordinates the ego, sorry, the interest of the ego, ego to the conservation of the community is really the first premise of every truly human culture. We call this basic attitude to distinguish it from egoism and selfishness, idealism. We're fighting for an ideal, for a moral ideal. By this we understand only the individual's capacity to make sacrifices for his fellow men. And if you again read this in context, Hitler's explicit, yeah, this might even mean you have to give up your life in order to um, perform what is required by moral idealism. And this, this is what conventional morality is about. And it remains with us to this day. Part of, to understand Putin, for instance, and the war in Ukraine, you have to see it in part, he's, he's um, animated by, to use the language of the Supreme Court justice, by something bigger than himself. And he puts it, this is about Russia and, and, and getting back to the Russian Empire. His arguments going back into, well, this happened in the 16th century. This is how I think of Ukraine. So it's all from a perspective, there's something bigger than ourselves that we should be serving, sacrificing to. And if it's millions killed in the Ukraine, tens of thousands of, of Russian soldiers used as cannon fodder, basically, it's, yeah, but this is for a higher cause. And you see it. So this, I mean, this is the worst example of go, what's going on right now in, um, in Europe, I think. But just think of another thing hitting the headlines in the last few weeks, the French protest. Um, they're protesting the raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64. And this was the first, these quotes, were, I look for a story that has some quotes from people in the protest. This is the first story I found, and I think it, it's pretty representative of the mentality. A 15-year-old protester. I don't want to work all my life. I'll be exhausted at the end. Or a 23-year-old protester. 64 is so far away. It's depressing. We should work less and have more free time. And it doesn't occur to them. And it doesn't occur to them because morality teaches them. They don't have to ask this question. Who pays for it? You don't want to work. You want to have more free time. Okay, how are you going to do that? It's always somebody else is going to pay for it. And every story I read on this, they put, like, so what is the opposition to the plan? What are they saying? In one way or another, this is a quote from one of the news stories, but every news story had this, was, well, their wealthy taxpayers and companies should have to pay more so that we can retire at 62, not 64. Why should they pay? What is wealthy taxpayer and corporations code for? The people who earned it. The people who produced it. They're the ones who should pay precisely because they earned it, they produced it, they created it. And why should it go to some 23-year-old who doesn't want to work? Because he didn't produce it. And he didn't create it. And he didn't earn it. So he's entitled to it. And that's what conventional morality is. And it, you can see it in its kind of worst form when it's, everything is subordinated to it. And that's when you get totalitarian regimes, but it's something like the welfare state that exists across Europe and exists now in North America to a huge extent, both in 
the US and Canada. It's the same idea in lesser, more diluted form. But it's the same idea and it leads to the same destructive consequences in the end. So it, it's to go back to the issue of that to think of her as what she's about is similar to the abolitionist in the 19th century. Her view is that what are conventional moral views, and not just about like one significant area, slavery, but the essence of the view. It's evil in theory, and therefore evil in practice. And it should be abolished, and it should be abolished because it's at war with anyone who creates anything. It's about bleeding life from those living. And I think Ayn Rand knew that in what she, uh, she knew that she's in effect in the position of the early abolitionists who are arguing that slavery is evil when everybody else seems to think it's either benign or it's actually good, that the slaves can't take care of themselves and so this is actually good for them and so on. She knew that she's in this kind of position and that so as a result she would be attacked and attacked kind of viciously. So let me end with this quote. So this is from the Fountainhead, and this is from one of the villains in the Fountainhead. But it's, it's, I think it's a view that she thinks is in, it's, it's wrong, but it's actually what is taking place. <clears throat> so this is in terms of just looking at morality and an evaluation of morality. And here's the quote. The test should be simple. Just listen to any prophet, and if you hear him speak of sacrifice, run. The man who speaks to you of sacrifices speaks of slaves and masters and intends to be the master. But if you ever hear a man telling you that you must be happy, and that's Ayn Rand's message, that will be the man who's not after your soul. That will be the man who has nothing to gain from you. But let him come and you'll scream your empty heads off, howling that he's a selfish monster. So the racket is safe for many, many centuries. And the only way to break the racket is to change that the accusation that you're selfish is that there, that is not monstrous, but something good. And I think that's what Tara will be talking about now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einran.org.